So Luke 24, verses 36 through 42. So it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for the blessings and the gift of your word. We ask that as we open your word, God, that you would speak to us through it, um, that you would confirm in our hearts uh, the truths that you have to teach us. God, that you would encourage, that you would embolden, um, God, that we would stake our lives on the things that we find revealed in your word. Father, we pray um, and thank you for uh, the churches of our community that this day have preached from the word of God. God, we pray for um, each of those churches. We pray for their gospel witness in their communities. Um, God, we pray for for um, any church, all churches uh, that preach the gospel and teach your word in our community. But we specifically pray for, um, God, our, our mother church, Pleasant Grove Baptist, um, and its ministry in the Hubbard community. Um, God, we pray for um, the churches of, of our friends um, who have gone out from our church to minister at other churches. God, we pray for um, the ministry of Beach Grove um, Baptist Church in the Louisville community. We pray for First Baptist Alcoa in, in the Springbrook uh, community. Um, God, we pray for Mount Olive Baptist Church in, in, um, I'm not even sure what you call that community, uh, the South Knoxville community. Um, Father, we pray for, pray for First Baptist Maribel um, and its ministry um, to to uh, College Hill and, and, and downtown uh, Maribel. God, we pray for all these different places, all these different churches that uh, we have sent people out from our church to, um, to, to minister to and to serve at. Um, we ask that that you would bless those congregations, that the gospel would be clearly preached, that you would draw people to those churches um, by your word and by your spirit, and that people would come to know Jesus Christ, that they would turn to him in faith and repentance, God, that they would live lives of um, holiness and of faithfulness, God, and that they would share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Father, we ask for revival in our community and in our time. Uh, we want to see a, a powerful moving of your spirit, um, even amongst um, our churches in this community. God, we pray that you would do it not only here, um, but but all across our region, all across our country, and all across our world. We thank you, God. We thank you for your continued care and provision. We thank you for your plans for your people. 
and how you do not abandon us. You do not um, leave us um, to our own efforts, but God, you go before us and work and move um, and prepare the way. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to sort of start in a little bit of a weird place. Instead of going right into Luke 24, I want you to jump real quick in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So the same basic area that we got our um, passage of assurance from. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19 quickly. Just to sort of set up our discussion of Jesus in this resurrection appearance that we see in Luke chapter 24. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12, says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We have even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right? Now, the reason why I start with that passage is to maybe say this, is when it comes to the resurrection, the stakes are pretty high. All right? The, re- the truthfulness of the resurrection, whether it is true or whether it is not, whether Christ is actually raised from the dead the consequences are pretty high, meaning we could just sort of go back through that passage. If Christ is not raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We are misrepresenting God. You are still in your sins and under the condemnation of God. The dead are lost forever. And the life we live now as as humans, but particularly as Christians, is to be pitied, right? The world should look on Christians as a bunch of sad and sorry people if Christ is not raised from the dead, okay? That's how big the stakes are, okay? And so when we come to this passage, we see this picture of Jesus Christ presenting himself to the disciples to assure them of the reality that he is in fact risen from the dead and has been resurrected, all right? That's the point of this passage. Jesus is saying, it's all true. I am in fact raised from the dead and I'm here before you. And so we sort of start backwards, okay? Because what we're going to do in this passage is we're going to start with what the resurrection isn't. What we're not talking about when we talk about the resurrection, although throughout church history, particularly over, let's say, the last hundred years or maybe 150 years, there have been voices within the church that would say that this is what's really going on. But it's not. Okay, Um, so we're going to say what the resurrection isn't starting off. So, again, go back to verse 38. Verse 38, it says, and he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Touch me and see. For the spirit does not 
A, a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So the main emphasis in this passage seems to be to eliminate any of the false options about what might be going on in the resurrection of Jesus. So it's it's here, this passage is here to make sure that we understand what is not happening and what is definitely happening. Notice when the disciples see Jesus standing in the room, and again, he's, he's done this a couple of times now, just within the last few verses. He was standing in a room with the, the men on the road to Emmaus, and he disappeared from their sight. And then now he has reappeared in the midst of this room of these disciples, seemingly materializing out of thin air. And what do they think? What's their first reaction when they see Jesus standing in the room? They all go, ah, it's a ghost. Right? That's what they say. We, we thought it was a spirit. They're worried that it's a spirit. You want to know why that is? Because the idea of ghosts is a pretty pervasive superstition everywhere in the world, okay? Pretty much any culture you go to anywhere in the world, there is some concept of the idea that maybe ghosts exist and that there are these spirits of the deceased who who, who move around among us and, and do stuff, Um Pretty much everyone everywhere at all times in some way has believed in the concept of ghosts. All right? Now, notice something. You know what didn't happen in that passage? When Jesus appeared in the room, they didn't go, ah, a resurrection. They didn't do that. You want to know why? Because resurrections don't happen. This is the only time it's ever happened in the history of the world. We go back to this. But we, we hear this line from the modern secular world. Oh, those poor, dumb, superstitious people back in the day. They just believed the resurrections happened. Resurrections were the kind of things that happened every day. No, they weren't. Nobody believed that. Nobody, many people did not even believe in the concept, the philosophical possibility of a resurrection. Resurrections aren't the kind of things that normally happen. But Jesus is saying that is what's happened. I have been resurrected from the dead in contradiction to what you would have expected throughout the whole history of the world. But they think it's a ghost. That's their first guess. They're like, I, I think it's a ghost. Verse 37, it says they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. All right. So the Bible is teaching, it, it's general teaching on the concept of ghosts is that they don't exist, okay? Um, we don't think of things in terms of the idea. The Bible does not present a picture where spirits of the deceased are walking among us, that somehow they are trapped here on earth, that between heaven and hell or something. That's not the picture that the Bible gives us. There's a few weird circumstances, okay? So we have to acknowledge that. There's like that weird story where Saul visits the witch at Endor, not the planet that the Death Star was around, the, the other one, Um the witch at Endor, and what does he see? He says, hey, I want you to call up the spirit of Samuel for me. And the spirit of Samuel shows up. And it seems to really be Samuel, even though some people might say it can't be because that's not possible. But the text seems to point to the idea that it is. That's a weird story. We're just going to straight up say that is a weird story, okay? It is out of the ordinary for what the Bible teaches. Because in general, what we find in the rest of the scriptures is this. When you die... 
your spirit is either in heaven or it is in hell. That's it. Okay. It doesn't get to wander around until it figures something out or talks to, you know, that's not, that's not the picture we see. And so the biblical concept is that ghosts aren't really a possibility. Um, but regardless of that, the guys here seem to believe in the concept of ghosts. They at least are superstitiously thinking this might be a possibility. But the implication is that Jesus is coming saying, hey, guys, I want you to know I'm not a ghost. That's not what's going on here. OK, I am not whatever a ghost is, whatever you think it is. I'm not. That's not what's happening. I'm not. The, I'm not a ghost. We've seen the disciples on multiple occasions actually think Jesus was a ghost. You remember that time where he's walking on the water and they look out over the storm and the boat. And they're like, oh, it's a ghost. Like they're always thinking Jesus is a ghost. But that's part of the reason is, is why. Because Jesus is always doing stuff that nobody else can do. And they don't have categories for this. They don't have a category for resurrection at this point. And so they're going, we're just explaining it the best way we can. But Jesus is saying, you're wrong in your understanding. I'm not a ghost. I have been resurrected. And so what does Jesus say? He says, come and touch me. I'm flesh and bone. I have physicality. I can be touched. And again, it implies here that not only can he be touched, but that the wounds that he received on the cross, the, the, the nail marks in his hands, the nail marks in his feet are still there. Jesus is saying, see, it's, it's, it's the same me. Right? I'm a real person with a real body and it's the same Jesus that you saw crucified, and you can come see the marks in my hands. I have a corporeal reality, fleshly existence. I'm not just a spirit. I'm a body as well, okay? And so in saying that, Jesus also eliminates a couple of other options that are things that people have said, particularly over the last 150 years, but in some cases throughout the history of the church, but they're pretty far-fetched ideas, okay? They're the kind of things that you say, man, it's it's way harder to believe that than it is to just believe that Jesus was resurrected. So, for example, um, there has been this outlandish claim at certain points of church history that what's going on is a, is a group hallucination, okay? That the, the, the disciples are having some sort of group hallucination. Maybe it's because, like, the house that they're hanging out and hiding out in is over, like, a methane pocket or something. I don't know, something weird. And the house is full of gas, and they're all getting high accidentally and, and having this hallucination. Some people have said, no, no, that has to do with the fact that maybe they were, uh, since they were locked up and, and couldn't get out, they were eating food that had gone bad. And that the spoiled food had some sort of hallucinogenic effect because of the mold or something like that. But all of those things ignore the obvious reality is that, you don't have joint hallucinations, okay? If a group of people are all hallucinating, they don't have like cooperative, interactive, joined together hallucinations, okay? It's not like you're, everybody's putting on like VR goggles and like experiencing the same reality. If something like that had happened, right? If there was some reason that these the, the disciples were hallucinating, right? We're all in the same room together. I'm going to see the purple elephant, right? And you're going to see like bugs crawling underneath your skin or something like that. Somebody else is going to be like, hey, there's Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the place. But we're not all going to see the same Jesus and have the same conversation with him and all be a part of this. That's not how it, it takes more faith to believe something like that happened than it does to believe that Jesus was resurrected. Another thing that Jesus is ruling out is some sort of cathartic, emotional psychological experience that they are 
uh, share it. All right. So maybe more plausible than the hallucination, but still pretty implausible is the idea that out of the grief and emotional trauma of the day of the cross and Holy Saturday and now this, this resurrection Sunday, the, the disciples are having some sort of shared psychological experience, right? So, um, something like this, and maybe you've experienced this. I, I certainly have. That may, have you ever seen a deceased loved one in a crowd? You ever done that? Okay. Like you're in a crowd and you have somebody who it was close to you and they died. And all of a sudden out of the corner of your eye, you swear you see them. Right. And then you look and you go, no, no, it just looks like the person or something like that. Right. I'll be honest. I do this all the time with my mom, particularly with her car. Okay. So I'll be driving down the road. My, my mom drove this little white Toyota Camry, four door Camry. And all the time I'll be driving down the road and I'll see a white Camry out of the corner of my eye. And for a split second, I see my mom in the front seat. It, it happens all the time, like once a week. And I go, Oh, it's my mom. And I look and then I go, Oh no, it's not my mom. Of course it's not my mom. Okay. But for a second, it happens, right? Your blunt, your brain plays a trick on you. Or maybe something like this. Maybe uh, you've been at a funeral before or a meeting after the death of a cared about part of a loved one or something like that. And people make a comment like this. They say, man, it almost felt like they were with us still. It almost felt like they were still in the room with us or something. And so some people will say that's what's going on in the resurrection. That Jesus isn't actually back, but man, it feels like he is because of the unity and the love and the shared common purpose of the disciples. It feels like Jesus is still there. And that's what was going on with this whole idea of resurrection. Jesus didn't actually come back, but he, he, um, they felt like he was there with them in some way. But here's the deal, man. If you read the passage, that can't be the case. They're not experiencing some sort of ethereal presence of Jesus, there's, he's standing there with them, right? He's conversant. He's present. He's touchable. He's interacting with them. He is eating food, in fact. He's not a ghost. He's not a hallucination. And he's not a memory. Jesus is saying, and making sure that we're all on the same page about this, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And he is standing in this room with these people. So that's what the resurrection is not. He's saying, it's not a hallucination. I'm not a ghost. This isn't some sort of psychological experience. Well, then what is the nature of the resurrection? What's going on there? What is Jesus like in his resurrected person? Now, here's the deal. When we come to the Bible, the actual nature of Jesus as a resurrected person and our future resurrections is kind of nuanced in a lot of ways. The Bible tells us some things for sure, but it also probably neglects to tell us lots of things that we might like to know about what it's going to be like one day to be a resurrected person. So there's truth that we can find, but there's not exhaustive truth, okay? So for one, I would say maybe a way that we could talk about it um, is the idea that there is going to be transformation, but there is also going to be continuity. Okay? So Jesus and we will be changed in a way, and yet also there will still be a connection between the way we were 
and the way we are in that, that future time. Okay. And again, a lot of these things are going to remain a mystery probably to us until that day that the Bible talks about that we will join Christ in the air at the resurrection. Um, we'll experience these things one day and probably until that day, there's no way we can talk exhaustively about it. But let's look at a couple of things. Paul talks about this idea of transformation in that same first Corinthians 15 section. If you, if you, if you want to go somewhere in the Bible outside of the resurrection accounts in the gospels to learn about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 is the place to do it. Basically, the whole chapter is about the resurrection and resurrection theology. And he emphasizes the fact that we will be changed in the resurrection. So verse 51 says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Okay? So a key idea in the in the resurrection, in a being resurrected, is that there will be a transformation that takes place. We'll be different in some ways. All right? And I think we see that very, in, in, in probably is the case, and we see that in what's going on in Jesus right here, okay? Isn't it weird that Jesus keeps on dematerializing and rematerializing? That's a weird thing. I don't know if you know this, despite what Star Trek would tell you. Um, people can't do that. Um, in your physical being right now, you have not, you do not have the ability to disappear from a room and then reappear in another room somewhere, somehow, uh, across space and time. And yet Jesus seems to be able to do this. Now you might say, actually, you saying that in the resurrection, we, we're going to have like night crawler, line of sight, teleportation, um, where we can dematerialize them. I don't know. Okay. That's probably, we're, we're straining the text to say that that is the case. But what we would say is this, Jesus in his resurrected body is doing things that Jesus didn't do in his unresurrected body. Maybe it's just a function of Jesus' divinity, his power. Maybe now that he has come into his resurrection, he is living more in, in, uh, you know, in alignment with the, the full set of, of power that he has as the second person of the Trinity. I don't know. Um, but Jesus is different in some way. He's doing different things in a certain way. He has been changed in some way. He's been obviously transformed in a certain way. Again, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 says this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is what is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. So he's saying that in our resurrection, and I assume he's speaking of Christ's resurrection too, there is a continent, there's a, there's a transformation. We have been changed from we will be imperishable, glorious, powerful. We will have bodies just as Jesus did, but those bodies will not be empowered by the natural and the fleshly anymore. They will be empowered by the spiritual. Okay? They will be spiritual bodies. That doesn't mean they won't be material, but it means that they will have a different something to them that is not of this flesh, but is of the spirit. Now, again, despite all these changes, there's still obviously a lot of continuity. There's been a transformation, but there's also a lot of continuity between these things. So look at, look at verse 41. 
It says, and while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and they took it. He took it and ate it before them. All right, so here's a couple of things. One, we notice this um, in terms of continuity. Jesus is recognizable. Jesus still looks enough like Jesus that they know that it's Jesus. There is a continuity between his wounds. That's an interesting thing, right? Um, that Jesus' wounds are still there in his resurrected body. Because again, I don't think we think of that in, in the way we think of resurrection. We think like one of these days, like, I'm going to get resurrected and like, I'm going to be instantly put into like my 25 year old self and be studly and buff and the six pack and like all, no balding and none of that stuff, right? That's what we think of in terms of resurrection. And the truth is, I don't know what I'm, a resurrected body is going to look like. Okay. But interestingly, Jesus still has his wounds. There's a continuity between Jesus earthly experience and his resurrected experience. Not only do they recognize Jesus, and again, remember that that's Jesus is, has been playing some tricks on them with that. On the road to Emmaus, those men did not recognize Jesus, but that wasn't because he looked different. It was because the Bible tells us that they were being kept from seeing who he really was, okay? Not because he was like, oh, man, his face is, like, completely different because he used to have that, like, busted up, you know, Jesus face, and now it's like this hip, perfect Jesus face or something. That's not what happened. He still looks like Jesus. It's just that he was. they were being kept from seeing that, okay? And so there's a continuity between the fa- in the fact that Jesus is still recognizable as Jesus, and also there's a continuity in the fact that Jesus eats. And I know that seems like a weird, like simple little fact, but like the fact that Jesus in his resurrected body is still hungry, still partaking in food, still has a physical existence that is, there's some normalcy there of the way that we live our lives. I'm not exactly sure how the best way to word it. Um, I know this. And this points back to our earlier thing. Ghosts don't eat. Okay. Spirits don't need food to sustain themselves. Right. You probably remember, um, Ghostbusters. You ever seen Ghostbusters? Right. There's this great classic scene where, uh, the ghost Slimer, who's the big blobby green guy that is famous or whatever, like they're in a hotel and Slimer is standing over this, uh, you know, room service cart. It's got all these trays of food on it. He's picking up that food and he's pouring it in his mouth. But what's happening? It's just falling right through him and collecting in a pile on the floor. You know why? Because ghosts don't eat food. They don't eat food. The immaterial can't process the material. But Jesus eats. Jesus is recognized that he's eating this meal. And so that certainly points not only to the fact that Jesus is real and physical and he's there with them, but I think it speaks to a level of continuity between our life here and our life to come. Part of the reason that I think um, people get, are scared about heaven or they're scared um, about the new heaven and the new earth is because it seems so foreign in the way that we have painted it to in the culture. So, so 
you know, when you tell somebody that, hey, you're going to go to heaven one day if you follow Jesus, and it's going to be like this eternal worship service where you stand and and just like worship Jesus and worship God forever. Um, that seems weird because that's not how we live here. Okay. We don't stay in a worship service for all of the time. Um, probably the case, I mean, let's be honest, worship services are not always the most entertaining thing to do. They are important. They are good and they are right, but entertaining is the wrong word. We could go down a whole other track of saying there are lots of churches that have decided that they would go less on the importance and more on the entertainment and, and trade those things off, but that's not the direction we're going to go. Um, a lot of people would say, man, I don't know that I want to spend eternity in a worship service, okay? But I think here's the deal. That's because we have such a small idea of what worship is really about. Because worship ought to be all-encompassing of our entire lives and everything that we have ever done. Again, we have these cartoonish images that we're going to spend eternity like sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, like bored out of our minds, okay? But you wouldn't get that picture from the Bible. Now, in fact, what do we see, for example, in Eden? In Eden, Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with God, perfect worship of God. And yet they have a job. They have something they're supposed to be doing. They're walking around in communion with God. There's a mandate there to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. What we find is that work and worship are connected. Fellowship and worship are connected. Life and worship are connected. They're not disassociated from each other, sort of the way that we oftentimes see our own lives. Like we sort of say, all right, you know, I go to sleep and then I go to work and then I come home and I hang out with my family uh, and friends. And then and then I do that again for five more days. And then I have a day where I go do some fun stuff. And then I have a day where I go worship and then I start it all over again. That's, I don't think that's the biblical picture. What does Paul say in first, uh, in, in Romans chapter 12? I'll, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Paul is saying to live your entire life in all aspects of it is how we spiritually worship God. Do, what we do in the corporate worship service is very important. And it can't be replicated um, out there in the world, right? This is important what we do, but it's not the only aspect of worship. And so what I think to myself is, can you imagine how different life would be if every moment of your life was truly holy, was set apart to the worship of God? If you went to your place of work and every moment of your work life was seen as a way of worshiping God, if every moment of your daily walking through life and engaging with your friends and your family was seen as an act of worship, as you dug in your garden and as you pick up, you know, your groceries and as you do your laundry and as you, every aspect of your life, every moment of it is done as an act of worship to God. Can you even imagine that? Well, I think the case is, is that you can't probably. I can't because it is so foreign to the way we live our lives because we compartmentalize everything. But I think the case is this. 
I think it is tied to this biblical truth that there is going to be a physical resurrection, that we will live in a world of physical stuff, spiritually empowered stuff, but physical nonetheless. It will be made new. It will be made perfect. It will be sinless. And we will worship in that place, but worship will be a part of your entire existence. It won't just be something you do for an hour and a half on Sundays. We'll be sanctified. We'll be perfected, but it won't be completely foreign is the idea that I'm getting at. There will be continuity between this life and the next life, I think. But the key is, is what? That we will be with him. We will be with Christ in this. He, we will be like him, that he is the firstborn from among the dead, that we will share in the resurrection that he has accomplished for us, and that we will be a part of that. Again, 1 Corinthians, the first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As the man of dust, so also those who are of dust. But as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so we will be like him. We will be with him. There will be continuity between this world and the next, but there will also be transformation. It'll be, it'll be new in ways that we won't understand probably fully until we get there. And, and I want to close just on this, just a completely sort of tangent idea, but I think it's cool. And, and it speaks a lot to, to what we're, to, to the whole, our whole life and, and how we deal with these things. Go back to verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. And it says what? But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said, why are you troubled? And why does doubt arise in your hearts? Okay. We see this several times after the resurrection of Jesus, that it talks about the literal fact that Jesus is standing with his disciples and followers. He's speaking to them. He's engaging with them. And it says they still doubt. They are still uneasy. They still can't believe their eyes. I love the line later on where it says they still, they disbelieved for joy, right? That's a great line. Okay disbelieved for joy, like it's too good to be true. That's what that is. It's just too good to be true. And but the reality is this, it is true. All right, what's that song? There's the song line. Uh, it may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true, right? It is true. But you know what? Even in the Even when Jesus is standing there, People still disbelieved. Okay. How much harder is it for us in some ways, right? Jesus references that. People who have seen me and have believed are blessed, but blessed even more are those who have not seen me and yet have still believed. Okay. Again, we think of the, we have this idea that, oh, we're these modern science, you know, we empirical, uh, we can't believe in all this nonsense about a resurrected Jesus. I'm telling you that the people in the first century who were looking at him had a hard time believing in a resurrected Jesus. Okay. Because resurrection is unbelievable. Except for the fact that it actually happened. Right. And so I would say this, when you feel those doubts creep in, 
when you just, when you read these stories and you go, Ash, I, 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 I realize that thing that we said in first Corinthians 15 at the beginning of the sermon. I realize the stakes are that high. I realize that if Christ is not resurrected, that my life is to be pitied. I realize that's the stakes, but man, I still, it's hard because every, that doubt creeps in. What I'm telling you is you're in good company because doubt crept in with the disciples who were staring at Jesus and touching the holes in his hands. They had a hard time believing too, because it's, it's, it's just too wonderful. It's too amazing. Okay. And so I would say, and trust in Jesus and know that, man, these are hard things because of, they're incredible. They've never happened before. And then they, they've not happened since. These truths are world changing, but they're all real. And Jesus is demonstrating in this passage that it's all real, that he's there, he's in the flesh, and he is with them. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. That's a weird place to kind of close. And again, I don't know exactly what the application for that would be in your, you know, like right now, like you need to go out of here and do something different because you realize that one day you're going to have a physical body that is in continuity with this life and transformed from this life. I don't know what the, the, the exact application of that is, but I think it's true. And so as we hold on to those truths that helps us understand our world better and understand the places that we are headed and the, and the rationality of the things that we believe and the, and the unity uh, of our faith. All right. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Asking God to impress these things upon our hearts, um, helping us to believe in the reality of the resurrection, um, even when uh, our our doubts um, rear their ugly head. Father God, we thank you um, again for your word. God, we thank you for, um, as we look to your scriptures, God, as the um, prophesied and foretold event of the resurrection of your son, um has occurred that God, even at that point where we should, you told us it was coming, it has happened and we should believe it. And yet God, in your grace and mercy, um, you continue to give evidence of that. God, you come to your disciples. Um, your son appears to them in flesh and blood bone, um, that he steps before them. He eats with them. He fellowships with them. He continues to teach them in the days um, leading up to his ascension. God, he demonstrates over and over again the reality of his physical resurrection from the dead, confirming all that he has said and taught up to this point. So, God, we ask that you would help us to grab hold of those truths, that the resurrection would be the rock-solid center of our faith, um, that it is the promise of, of a future uh, life that we hold on to. And we recognize that without the resurrection of your son, um, God, that it's all in vain. But because he has been resurrected, um, we have a hope, we have a future, we have salvation and redemption God, and we have a place in your family and in your kingdom. God, help us to hold on to those ideas when we struggle, when we doubt. Um, come alongside us and bless us and draw us to yourself. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Behold me here, rejoicing in that thy throne, Lord. To be cherished and blessed, and Amen. That's a good song to end on. That's a good, I've never thought about, the passage changes sort of the context of that song. I like it when that happens. Um, like you think you hear a song and you know it, you've thought about it the same way for a long time, and then it makes a different connection. So, good choice. Um, hope you have a great week. Um, I think we got two sermons left in Luke. That's it. Um, and then we're going to be done with, with, uh, our four year journey. Um, so, uh, we're going to talk about the ascension. We're going to skip over a passage. Um, we're going to do a Mother's Day sermon too, which will be a standalone. And so, but we're going to do, we're next week. Is next week Mother? No, it's not. Uh, next week we're going to talk about the ascension. Week after that, we're going to do Mother's Day. And then we're going to come back after Mother's Day and do a closing sermon, um, for the whole book. Um, and then we're going to be done with, um, Luke and who knows where we will go next. I've got some ideas, but we'll see what happens. So, uh, again, hope you have a great week. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you.
make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you. Give you peace. We'll see you next week.